Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jettikin. Rachel. <laughs> we have a special guest this week, which we've never had before. No. Do you want to say, reveal yourself? <laughs> yes. Hi. Hi. My, my name is Billy Jensen. Hi, Billy Jensen. I'm an investigative journalist and a uh, author now. I've got a new book out called Chase Darkness with Me, and I'm also on a couple of different podcasts, one called The Murder Squad and one called The First Degree. Oh, I didn't know about The First Degree. Yeah, Ooh. you should check out The First yeah, Degree. Okay. Yeah, okay. So Billy and I have been kind of Twitter friends for yeah, a while now. Yeah, we've been Twitter friends for a while. And he reached out to me like last week and he's like hey i have a new like a book it's on it's on audible it's right? an audible original yeah um and he said he wanted to like come by and do our show we've never had a guest before but it seemed like a perfect fit yeah Initially, i thought it was just going to be an interview about the book but he's like oh no i want to do a case with you guys <laughs> so then i was like fuck i have to like <laughs> really do a good job now <laughs> my research yeah i was like oh my god we're having an actual investigative journalist to come on <laughs> and this is like so wild because desi and i always talk about on our show about how both of us are high school dropouts and didn't go to college but we're big true crime buffs right. like, a, like a lot of people uh -huh. are today so this is pretty exciting and um like i said before i listened to your show your podcast uh, Jensen and Holes. Yes. Uh, all weekend, and it's great. Thank so you, so you much. guys should definitely check that out. But let's talk a bit about the, the Audible book first. It's called Chase Darkness with Me, mm -hmm. and it's kind of part memoir, right? It is. It's part memoir, part. So I was writing unsolved murder stories for 17 years, and I got fed up and then figured out a way to actually solve them. So it follows my life and kind of the reasons why I do what I do. And then it leads up to uh, my relationship with Michelle McNamara and then her passing and then finishing uh, her book with her researcher, Paul Haynes, the book called uh, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, and then coming up with this system and then solving a murder in or solving a homicide in, uh, in Chicago and then solving about eight or nine others. And then um, it ends with the Golden State Killer being captured. I saw something mentioned where it was like the four murders in Allentown. Allentown, that, yeah. Is that in the book? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. That's a big part of the book is okay. that, uh, you know, I always kind of equated, not equate, just in my head they were connected, Allentown and Golden State Killer, just because I had just done the Allentown story. I was in, I was in Allentown, which is where... In 1985, two bodies were found in a barrel, a woman and a child. In 2000, two more bodies were found, um, two children. And it turns out that they were all connected. Uh, three of them were related, one of them wasn't. And uh, I was working on that story, and I just got back, and I was at a bar with a bunch of friends, and then I had learned that Michelle had passed. So those killers were always very much connected uh, for me. And then... You find out in the book, uh, and Chase Darcy's with me, that they actually are connected in real life in the way that they were caught, which blew my mind. Wow. Yeah. That sounds great. Wow. Um, and then your your podcast, you guys kind of take like a citizen detective, like you're kind of helping people help solve crimes, That's right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think that we've been listening and watching and reading true crime stories for the last five or six years now, and now's the time to put all that, those wits to good use and enter what I'm calling true crime 2.0, and let's try and solve some of these things. We've yeah. got over 200,000 unsolved murders since 1980. We can definitely solve some of them. 
Okay, so when I found out Billy wanted to do a case, I actually just had him suggest something, and he suggested um, what is, I guess, an unsolved murder, even though I have some thoughts on it. <laughs> well, that's the thing. It's def it's a Hollywood mystery. Uh, people wonder. Um, you know, the medical examiner said it was a murder, but then you had a very famous um, Hollywood noir writer come in and do his own investigation right. and say it wasn't a murder. So yeah. we're going to investigate that We're going to go into it. So uh, the case is the, um, the, I guess I'm going to call it the murder or unsolved death of Karen Cupsonette. And she was a 22-year-old actress, wannabe actress, living in West Hollywood uh, back in the early 60s, late 50s. I guess she maybe moved out there. Uh, so I'm going to start with some background. Billy already has his file out. <laughs> really? <laughs> it's, like, intimidating. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm loving this right okay. now. I'm loving it. So Karen was born Roberta Lynn Coopsonette on March 8, 1941, in Chicago to Essie and Irv Coopsonette. Our Earth was like a big deal in Chicago at the time. He was a former football player who had an injury that ended his career in, in sports, but he became a sports writer for the Chicago Sun-Times in 1935. In 1948, he was given his own column called Cups Column, and I think it was sort of like a gossip, whatever type column that was really relying on his personality. Uh, it was for the Chicago Sun-Times, Sun -Times, but eventually it was distributed to over 100 newspapers around the world. He parlayed that success into a TV career in 1952. He became a television talk show host on CBS. Five years later, he replaced Jack Parr on NBC's America After the Dark, which eventually would become The Tonight Show. So he was pretty well-known and successful. He also appeared in two movies produced by Otto Preminger, including Anatomy of a Murder. He was probably one of the most prominent media figures in Chicago during that time period. And like, there's even like a statue of him in Chicago that was really? recently like refurbished. Like, so he's pretty big deal, even though most people probably have never heard of him. I mean, right. Yeah. Have you? No, <laughs> <laughs> this was so, back. This was back when newspaper columnists and newspaper uh, people were rock stars. The original yeah. Twitter stars yeah. were newspaper columnists. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, when Karen was a teenager, Essie kind of became a classic stage mom and started really pushing her daughter to pursue an acting career. She also introduced her at that time to crash diets and diet pills to kind of, you know, keep her get trim. that weight and keep her trim and get her acting career going. You know, diet pills are basically speed. So uh, she made her acting debut at the age of 13 in a Chicago like local theater production, and eventually she studies at the Actors Studio in New York City. According to one thing I read, Irv was kind of a good guy, and he had a you know fine relationship with his daughter. But Essie was not as uh, jovial. <laughs> she was described by this one thing I read as a loud, obnoxious, foul-mouthed woman, which, quite honestly, I'm offended by. <laughs> like, I don't see the problem yet. But she did not have a great relationship with Karen, and mostly that's kind of due to all this pushy stage mom nonsense. According to... Some people, Karen was like a fine actress, but she had a limited range and there was nothing really special about her that made her stand out, you know, as far as an acting career or even her looks were just, she was fine and she was pretty, but it wasn't like this star quality thing happening. Um, Essie also encouraged Karen to get plastic surgery. So she had it on her chin, her nose, her oh ears, her eyes. Yeah. So How old I mean, was she? Well, she's like in her late teens, I guess, when this was happening. Uh, so yeah, pretty young. 
But Karen had her dad's connections, which definitely helped her kind of start landing some work in Hollywood um, early on. But she also felt an immense pressure to succeed like, and to please her parents. Her first big part was in 1962. She was cast by her dad's friend, Jerry Lewis, in a small role in the movie Ladies' Man. Is that the one where he says, hey, ladies? Apparently I don't even know. Never said, hey, <laughs> Did he lady. never say he, that? He never you mean the that. Beastie yeah. Boys song, Hey Ladies? <laughs> yes. No, I have like, I pulled up a poster for Hey Ladies or Ladies Man, and it says, You'll roar when you see Jerry as a girl shy, upstairs man of all work in a Hollywood hotel for girls only. It's the most hilarious idea since the invention of the belly laugh. Quite honestly, I'm not sold. <laughs> like, so she played one of the girls in the hotel. It was okay. not like a great big part. But obviously, I mean, it was he's a huge star, so it was a big deal. She also played Annie Sullivan in a Laguna Beach production of The Miracle Worker, and she started getting a bunch of little roles on TV, including like the Donna Reed show. That was like the only one I recognize of all the, the other shows. And she was a regular on a show called The Gertrude Berg Show. Her last on-screen appearance was on Perry Mason, and that's an episode that aired two months after she died. By the way, I love Perry Mason. Do you like that show? <laughs> Did you watch yes, it? Yes, well, I think he's a, he's never never lost a case, right? Um, I was when I was living with my dad in a very abusive household. <laughs> that was the only TV channel I had played Perry Mason, so I used to watch it like all the time. I mean, obviously it was like in reruns, and I yeah. was much too young to be watching that show. <laughs> but it was the only thing on TV, so I would like religiously watched Perry Mason. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm never going to watch Perry Mason the same way again. You said that. Okay. I'm just going to think about sad Desi. Yeah. Sad as a child. Like, Dad, <laughs> leave me alone. Um, so although her acting career was kind of starting to take off in like a mild way, her personal life was straight up mess. Karen became even more obsessed with keeping her weight down. And although... She, I didn't see anything that she was diagnosed. She clearly had some kind of eating disorder. Um, in an interview to promote the Gertrude Burke show, the interview is pretty much her exclusively talking about food and her weight. Like that's how obsessed she was with keeping that weight off. The pressure to stay thin intensified once she was in Hollywood, and she really began abusing diet pills at that point. Um, adding to the mix was a really toxic relationship that she had with this guy who was an actor named Andrew Prine. They met in December of 1962 when she was a guest star on his show that was called The Wide Country. So they kind of began a relationship right when they met. Uh, the relationship was problematic. He didn't want to commit. He was like a classic fuckboy back in the day. Um, in July of 1963, Karen got pregnant, and her friends, Mark and Marsha Goddard, he actually is an actor who was on Lost in Space, they took her to Tijuana to get an illegal abortion and actually paid for her uh, to get that abortion. So. Is this the fuck boy? An wow. Is that Andrew? Look, He's not that hot. No, but I will tell you this. This guy this guy has a timeless fuck boy look. He kind of reminds me of Richard Speck. <laughs> Don't you think? Also another classic, classic fuck boy, Richard yeah. Speck. Yeah, I mean, this guy has this the, the shades on. He's got like, he just looks like he just looks like a guy who's going to ghost you for sure after you meet him. He gets one little 
you know, star role on some right. shitty show. No, he has he's a credit on, com- he has one Comedy Central credit. That's what right. he has. <laughs> and he's gonna- How many Instagram followers? <laughs> he, he has a yeah. lot of Instagram followers. Not quite enough to be an influencer, no, but he's on his way. He's not influencer level, but like somehow he had like one post that like made him go viral once. So yeah. he has a lot of followers. And he bought a bunch too. <laughs> yeah, he bought some too. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Um, where was I? Okay, so this guy... And, and that's that's her. Don't, don't read oh. ahead in the story. Oh, I won't. I won't. I'm just looking yeah. at the pictures. I think she's cute, Karen. She is cute. Also, her nickname is Cookie, Cookie. which I love. Yeah, her <gasps> nickname is Cookie. Cookie is like an amazing nickname. It's great. I would great. love it. Cookie and Kitty. Like, if ever I'm going to have a nickname when I'm really old, Cookie it's or one Kitty. Of those. Well, we can choose. We can we just... have to, like, rock, paper, scissors. Yeah, because I'll be happy with Cookie or Kitty. <laughs> Me too. I love them both. Um, okay, so... She, after she comes back from the abortion, they pretty much end their relationship, or he pretty much ends their relationship. He starts dating other women, and eventually he gets a new girlfriend, and Karen kind of low-key begins to stalk, stalk them, which was much harder back in the day. I was going to say. <laughs> like, you had to actually... Yeah, go actually, out on the act- town, right? You actually had to put in effort. This wasn't social media stalking no, or anything. So you actually had to be there looking at somebody. Yeah, you had to like follow them, put your like, you know, the handkerchief on your head and the sunglasses and like, tro- you know, you follow had to them leave your house. Town. So yeah. what a yeah. nightmare! Yeah. Total nightmare. Not worth it. So, and now all of this is probably extra fueled by what is now a really strong addition. Uh, I'm sorry, addiction to diet pills, which you know probably up your paranoia slightly. And and she was also on other prescription drugs at the time. Um, Around this time, she's also arrested for shoplifting some books and clothing. And I'll get, I'm bringing this up for a reason, but during that arrest, she is kind of, you know, processed and fingerprinted. Uh, I think she just pays a fine. So it's like a minor thing, but obviously shoplifting is kind of a, uh, it's like a red flag for someone who's in trouble, right? Like, especially when they kind of come from a wealthy family. Yeah. Um, do you have no. a comment? Winona Ryder did show. <laughs> yeah. It's definitely like a cry for help crime, don't you think? Like, I mean, there are people who do so it did, for... So did Joseph D'Angelo, the Golden State Killer, too. He shoplifted. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, That's interesting. He did... shoplifted a... a uh, you know, that was the crazy thing. When we were trying to figure out if this guy was really the guy that night when the name came out and I was on newspapers.com and I was looking for any old newspaper clippings and it said that he was he was a cop and he was arrested for shoplifting i was like that's weird that a cop would shoplift and then i read what he shoplifted and then i went holy shit because he shoplifted dog repellent and a hammer oh well that makes more sense (laughs) right well it depends on the books that yeah that that cookie shop yeah exactly how to stop your boyfriend (laughs) um So around the same time, Andrew begins to receive threatening and profane notes that are done in the classic magazine cutout letter. No way. Yeah. So do you have a picture of that? (laughs) He confronts Karen about these letters and she's like, I got them too. And they actually meet to discuss these and they kind of show each other each other's letters that they got. So he Um, initially thought that the letters were coming from her. Yeah. I'll get into it later because we're going to get a reveal. Rachel. But yeah, so they kind of discuss them and um, it's an understatement to say that Karen was not handling the breakup very well. I'm guessing it's like extra bitter when someone dumps you because they want to see other people and then they they hunker down with a girlfriend, 
Like it's kind of like yeah. the George yeah. Clooney thing. He's always like, "No, I'm never getting married." And then he marries someone, and you're like, well, "Hey, wait yeah. a minute, bitch." <laughs> well, apparently she had a diary. I don't know if you found the diary yeah. stuff. Yeah, are yeah. You, are you gonna get to that or no? A little bit, but do you have more? Uh, yeah, the, yeah. Okay, we'll um, bring it up. Yeah, we'll bring it up. Okay, okay, we'll get to that. So, um, on the evening of November 27th, and this is the night before Thanksgiving, Karen attends a dinner party at the Goddard's home. She shows up like an hour late. She was supposed to get there at 6.30. She comes an hour late by taxi. The couple almost immediately notice that something is kind of off about her. She doesn't really eat her food. She kind of just pushes it around the plate. Well, she's I guess on that's speed. Probably, that's probably not that abnormal. Um, Marsha said that during the dinner, she her lips seemed numb. Her voice was funny. She moved her head at odd angles. They also noticed that her pupils seemed um, constricted. Mark told authorities later that he confronted her about her state during the meal, and she began to cry. Uh, she told him this story about finding an abandoned baby on her doorstep earlier that day before she called the police to come pick it up. Now, Karen was invited to come back to the Goddards the next day for Thanksgiving. She told them that, no, she was going to be going to um, actor Glenn Ford's house with her boyfriend, Andrew. So Uh, she's still calling him her boyfriend, other people? Yeah. At 8.30 p.m., she leaves the dinner party by taxi, and she goes home. She promises that she's going to call the Goddards soon. Um, So after leaving the dinner party, she returns to her apartment, and she watches TV with two of her friends, one is a man named Edward Rubin, and one is a man named Robert Hathaway. I read that one thing that she had a really nice TV set up, <laughs> that her place was a popular place to go hang out and watch TV. Both of the men said that Karen kept falling asleep, and then she eventually goes to her bedroom at 11.15 that night, and that they kind of left after that. Uh, they leave the apartment, and they lock the door behind them, they said. Then they went to Hathaway's apartment, which happened to be next or he was a neighbor of Andrew Prime the boyfriend or the ex-boyfriend whatever he was and the three men then said that they watched TV together so they watched so, her friends watch TV with the ex-boyfriend right i guess they all kind of knew each other on november 30th mark and marsha goddard had not heard from karen in a few days at this point and they were kind of worried so they go to her apartment after she failed to telephone them like she promised he, Mark said that on his way over, he had a funny feeling that something was wrong. They found the door unlocked, and inside they discovered Karen's nude, decomposing body lying face down on the sofa. Flecks of blood were on her face and a pillow nearby. The TV was still playing at a very low volume. Uh, the apartment, according to this thing I read, was a complete mess. A lamp had been turned over, a coffee pot, and a brandy snifter full of cigarette butts were overturned on the floor. Cigarettes were kind of strewn all about the sofa. A cup of coffee was partially drunk, was like on a um, table across the room. And Mark initially thought that she had died from a drug overdose. That was like his initial whatever take on it. When police came, they searched her apartment. They found 13 bottles of prescription medication. All these names, I don't really know what they are, but I think it's a lot of diet pills and speed. Uh, And then they also found a note written by Karen that reflected sort of where she was at in her life at the time. Now, do you have this note? I do. Okay. So some of the lines in the note I'll read, but do you have like the whole note? Because I just have like snippets. Yeah. I I think, well, I have a little bit of the note. I I don't know how, I don't know how much of the note I have, to be honest with you. Okay. So So I'll read what I have. But let's just, I I just want, so with her diary though, Uh so on July 30th, to show how she was, just to backtrack a little bit, just to give you an idea about how she wrote, she, uh, this is what she wrote on July 30th, Andy with Anna, 
Me watched from Hedge, awful nightmares. August 20th, so humiliated by Andy's lack of interest. October 29th, Andy acting ugly, complete indifference, seen at his house, I'm hysterical. November 4th, and this is in parentheses, after hiding in his attic, wish I were dead. Oh my and God. then November 20th, I'm losing reality. So these were oh, supposedly wow. from her diary. So she's definitely steady, steadily like declining. The attic is crazy. That's like the Batman case. Right. Do you know that case? No, which case is that? <laughs> Where the, the woman had the lover in her, in her attic, and he came down and killed her husband at some point? Oh, yes. Is yes, that yes, from the that 20s? Yeah, yeah, from the 20s. Uh, that's so, crazy. So the note says here, why don't you, you can go ahead and read the note. Okay, let's see. Well, let me put it on my computer, because okay. my eyesight is really bad. <laughs> so the note I have that she said, I'm no good, I'm not really that pretty, my figure's fat and will never be the way my mother wants it. Why must I be so alone? What's the use of living with nothing to believe in? There's nothing. Only phony motives, selfish egoists, selfless people, fat heads, and drunks, and I want out. Is that what you have, basically? Yes. Well, then she says, I like President Kennedy, Bertrand Russell. Oh, right. Theodore Rakes, Peter O'Toole, Sidney J. Harris, and Albert Finney. Like she those, had like a list of famous people that she liked. That 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 were good people. That as were good. I, she's trying to say that those were good those people. Were good right. people. I mean, right. she's she's really just railing against Hollywood and her mom here, which is what it sounds right. like. There's yeah. only phony motives, selfish egos, selfless people. I think she means selfish yeah, people. Yeah, me too. Um, I uh, like fatheads. Fatheads and like drunks. Fatheads needs to out. come back. The police also find a stack of shredded and cut up magazines that's clearly, she had made those notes. Right. And they can kind of basically see that. Um, they also did find her fingerprints on the paper and the tape that sealed the notes. And her fingerprints were on file from that shoplifting arrest uh, that happened, I guess, like a month or two before. So, and then, like he said, there was a diary that showed a record of her relationship with Andrew and also like her stalking like she would kind of detail like where she saw them or what they were doing uh in the diary as well so as I said before uh the initial belief you know the the the, her friend thought it was an OD the initial belief by the police was that it was either an OD or that she committed suicide yeah because one of the bottles was completely empty yeah oh yeah uh and her friends and family we're all kind of leaning towards accidental OD, which I think is probably pretty common. Uh, you don't want to think it's suicide, right? Um, and some of them said that she was happy and da-da-da, but I don't think they really knew what was going on with her and the boyfriend. Then the medical examiner comes into play. He's a guy, he's a guy named Dr. Harold Cade. I'm going to get more into him later, but right now he basically examines her and discovers that she has a broken hyoid, hyoid bone in her throat, which and we indicates... know what that always means. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that indicates strangulation. And what kind of strangulation? Manual, manual right? Strangulation. Manual strangulation. Is it only manual? Yes, because what happens is is that it certainly could with a ligature, but when a ligature is wrapped around your neck, the hyoid bone kind of floats around. So if a ligature wraps around your neck, it's going to move up or It'll move like down pop wherever up it or is. Below. Yeah. Okay. But when you're doing manual, it's going to, that's the whole thing is that it's going to crack at okay. some point. Well, we'll get into discussing the ways that that could break <laughs> later. Um, but yeah, so once he uh, declares this, it's the it's now a homicide we're dealing we're dealing with. Um, so he lists the time of death at approximately twelve thirty a.m. on November twenty eighth. The press kind of like now. 
I don't know if you've noticed the, the timing of this, but this is like about a week after JFK is assassinated. Yes. So I'm curious about this because the initial stories of this are really fucked up and wrong. Like there's a Tribune story that came out Sunday, December 1st that had her age wrong. It had anonymous police sources saying that it was a suicide and then also saying that the apartment was really torn up and it was um, a struggle and that it was obviously a homicide. Um, is there any like... I don't know enough about journalism to know, like, was everyone on, like, the JFK thing and the, the, the third-tier reporters were kind of left behind for these lesser cases? Uh, very, it very well could have been, yeah. Right. JFK was the biggest story of, really, the, the, you know, since World War II. Yeah, I mean, it's... So it is, everybody was in there, everybody was what they call flooding the zone, where it's just like you're sending every reporter over there, and yeah, you're going to put on your lesson and reporters to... to to, to deal with this to deal, minor... To deal with this kind of thing. Uh -huh. Because this was such a huge story. So, uh, you know, there were a lot of stories like that when I did a story on the only person to be murdered in New York City on 9-11. Oh, yeah, I saw Whoa. something about that. Yeah, his name is Henrik Shewiak, and it's still unsolved. So wow. it's also because the police the were... Resources the, the resources there. were yeah. there and everything, and the police actually showed up pretty quickly. And I talk about this in the book, actually, where I'm... I went and investigated it and found a lot of things out that the police didn't find out. And the police said, don't ever do that. Like, don't ever knock on those doors again. You probably talked to somebody who knows the killer. I remember that. Because <laughs> <laughs> wow. it, it was in Bedford-Stuyvesant. And, and, uh, yeah. But, um, yeah, that happens. You right. know, the, and uh, it's it's overshadowed by history was what I called that story, I remember. And it was... Uh, uh, you you see that a lot, and you see that yeah, that you're going to put your top notch reporters are going to be on the Kennedy thing and finding any sort of Kennedy link. Right. Now, do you know the Kennedy link with this story? Yeah, the ridiculous I'm Kennedy it. link. I'm yeah. going to get to it after I get through this next little bit. So obviously, the boyfriend is one of the initial chief suspects. He does claim that he talked to Karen that night, um, trying to patch up whatever problems they were having. Um, he said that he also spoke to her at 12 a.m., so that's like 30 minutes before she was declared, you know, dead by the medical examiner. Um, the detectives theorized that Prine uh, had learned that the anonymous threat letters that he had received were actually created by Karen, and that was what enraged him in some kind of argument, and that that was the motive for him to go over and murder her. Uh, Edward Rubin and Robert Hathaway, the two men she watched TV with, were also you know, brought in and questioned. They all took polygraph tests that were inconclusive, and they were pretty much cleared almost immediately. Years later, Rubin did go back and in and, and for questioning, and he kind of changed his story and said that uh, he didn't go watch TV with Andrew later. He went home with two women from a bar that he had gone to in between. But ultimately, it didn't really matter because no one really thought he was... Uh, you know, the murderer or whatever. Andy also tells police that Glenn Ford, um, he did go to the Glenn Fords on Thanksgiving, but Karen was never invited, which I thought was low key. <laughs> like he had to bring that up. Karen also lied to her parents that she couldn't come home for Thanksgiving because she had to do work on Perry Mason. But that was also a lie because the episode had already been like, well, look, in it the doesn't can. sound like she wanted to spend Thanksgiving with her parents anyway. Yeah. Right. So, Another detail that the men that sort of seemed to clear the men was that the medical examiner said that she had been strangled by a left-handed person and none of them were. Does that matter? Like, can you tell? Do you know? As far as strangulation goes, if it's a, I guess they were probably saying that the left hand would have been, um, would have been on the neck first. 
Right. So that's where the impressions of okay. the of the thumb and then the the right. Right. would have been over there. So you can you yeah. can kind of tell. Yeah. Beauty should be good for you, and that's why we're excited to tell you about Beauty Counter. Beauty Counter is a clean makeup and skincare brand that started in 2013, disrupting the beauty industry by shedding the light on the need for stronger ingredient regulations in the personal care products that we use daily. Today, Beauty Counter is the leading clean beauty brand creating innovative and high-performing products that are safer and cleaner than even their like-minded competitors. So what do we mean by clean? Over 1,800 questionable ingredients are never used in Beauty Counter's formulations. They call this their never list. You can learn more at beautycounter.com, where you're also going to want to check out their incredible products. Best of all, if you're a new customer and you order through March 15th, you'll get free shipping on your order of $100 or more when you use the code HOLLYWOOD. Once again, to get free shipping on your order of $100 or more, go to beautycounter.com and use the code HOLLYWOOD. As most of us have found out the hard way, getting into debt is easy, getting out of it is hard, especially if your credit score isn't great. Thankfully now there's Upstart.com, the revolutionary lending platform that knows you're more than just your credit score and offers smarter interest rates to help you pay off high interest credit card debt. I know firsthand that there's nothing more frustrating than trying to pay something down and your payments are pretty much just paying off the interest. Upstart goes beyond the traditional credit score when assessing your credit worthiness. Upstart believes you're more than just your credit score. They believe in you. The best part? Once the loan is approved and accepted, most people get their funds the very next business day. Over 400,000 people have used Upstart to pay off credit cards or meet their financial goals. So free yourself from the burden of high interest credit card debt by consolidating everything into one monthly payment with Upstart. See why Upstart is top ranked in their category with a 4.9 out of 5 rating on Trustpilot and hurry to upstart.com slash Hollywood to find out how low your Upstart rate is. Checking your rate only takes a few minutes. That's upstart.com slash Hollywood. There was a fourth person that was questioned during this period, and he is an actor named David Lang. He lived in the apartment below Karen, and he claimed that he returned home about 1230 a.m. that night from a date with Natalie Wood. Oh. Yeah. Uh, So he was... This is like such a weird story for me. He's like kind of known for being drunk, and he was known when he was drunk that he would enter other people's apartments, which I find to be a very weird personality trait. Tra- I mean, right? if you're a drunk, it's not that weird. <laughs> Robert Downey Jr. used to do that. I guess. Uh, he also, like a few days after Karen died, he told a woman that he had killed Karen, and then he claimed he was just joking, which uh, is like the as, ultimate. As you do. At yeah. the ultimate right. at reply guy, right? I'm just just joking. <laughs> Calm down, what guys. What a thing to joke. See, that's a weird personality. Trait. Right. Why would you joke about that? So, um, in 1988, uh, Irv Kupsinet, he published a memoir in which he revealed that he and his wife, Essie, believed that Aaron, um, I'm sorry, Andrew Prine had nothing to do with Karen's murder and that he believed the most likely suspect was David Lang. Essie kind of had a personal vendetta against Prine like early on and was really trying to destroy his career in the Hollywood. Mom? Yeah. yeah. Uh, but he ended up having like a very successful career. He has like literally like 
uh, over 200 credits. Wow. Like he, yeah, was he was, in a one, ton of he was one of those guys. It was like he would show oh, up on TV like, shows. He's not famous, yeah. but he was just in like everything. He was everything. that guy. Oh, it's that guy Oh, from you know that he was in right. that, that I saw was, uh, he was in Amityville too. He played one of the priests. Oh my God. <laughs> so he was just always working. He was just always working. So she did nothing to like whatever. Now the thing, the, the family was like, suspicious of Lang and they thought that he he came from like a wealthy family and they thought that that influence sort of stalled the investigation he was the uh brother of actress Hope Lang she was sort of big in that period I think she was in Peyton Place do you know her uh Uh, no and then he actually eventually went on to have a pretty successful uh producing career he worked I'm sorry what's the relationship between uh Karen and David David Lang he was her neighbor. neighbor Oh, right. Okay. He worked eventually for Alan J. Pakula, and he he was a producer on Clute, which I love that movie. Um, so he also kind of suffered no consequences from this. Some people later speculated that the baby story, that weird baby story, was sort of due to trauma and guilt over her abortion because there's no evidence that any of that is true. Like the baby story. Did yeah. you have anything? I mean, no, I have nothing on the so baby the only story. So I, I did that, read something yeah. that people were like, oh, maybe she felt... Traumatic, yeah. you know, guilt over her abortion, and she wanted to like save a baby to kind of whatever. I want to just make this one last comment before we go into the conspiracy theory. Her weight was something that was commented on, like literally to the bitter end. I That's found awful. Like in the I newspapers? found, yeah, I found an old newspaper article announcing, you know, it's like basically an obituary, and the last line of the obituary was, "She was five foot three and a half and weighed in recent years a trim one hundred and five pounds." Oh Jesus! Isn't that horrible? You know, and it's it's like one of those things when when the Bundy tapes came out, I I I was waiting for them to put at least right before. The credits. I was waiting for them to actually show me a picture of each victim, and then there's right. a couple lines about them, and they didn't do it. Wow! So then I went on Twitter the next day, and I started doing that, and it went viral. And it was so heartbreaking for two things. One, it was every woman and girl, because he killed girls too. Every one of their bios started out with she was a pretty blank, she was a pretty yeah. colored, wow. she was a pretty this, pretty that. And but then there were some women that that had nothing about them that I could see. I mean, I, I didn't I didn't go in and start making phone calls. I was just doing this on the web, just trying to right. trying to get it out there. But, right. And, yeah. It kind of reminded me of this thing that I've always been obsessed with in the movie. Um, uh, oh, sorry, Valley of the Dolls. When they bring Sharon Tate's body out after she dies, one of the reporters yells, "What were her measurements?" <laughs> Do you guys remember that moment? It always stuck out to me because I was like, who the hell is asking that when someone just died tragically? Like, well, I think we talked about pretty recently on the show because Desi and I, like, we looked through a lot of really old newspapers and just, like, the language that they use when yeah. talking about victims is pretty horrifying yeah. sometimes. Or and, even uh, women who might be the murderer. Oh, yeah, that Even too. that is, like, just, like, it's like she's extra bad because a woman shouldn't yeah. kill their husband. Like, and it's so it's so interesting too because there was so much more of a connection because the reporters used to be able to go right up to the crime scenes they used to be able to see right. the bodies now you can't see any of that anymore but yet we, we've obviously we've we've evolved as a society but um yeah they were very much like um we were also in the era of newspaper wars which is which has morphed into not even TV wars anymore. I guess it's podcast wars or something. But <laughs> right. you know where where you had to be as you know the, the salacious ones are going to win right. win the day. Or, or just the headline. Yeah. Sometimes won't even match what's in the story, but it's like something that will make you click. Right. Uh, that kind of stuff. I think probably one of the reasons this case is still sort of 
being talked about today is this crazy conspiracy theory that we're going to get into right now. Yes. As I mentioned before, this was a week after JFK was assassinated. Okay. So in 1967, this guy, his name is Penn Jones Jr., writes a book called Forgive My Grief. It's a self-published four-volume book. So that should tell you something. <laughs> wow. That should tell you something yeah. about the writer. It's like yeah. an early... It's an early day blogger, right? Early, like, yeah, it's an early ebook. And um, who is like, this guy? Why? Why do I want to hear his story? I don't know. I don't have much. Do you have anything on him? No, I didn't really look, but I couldn't. No, there was no, nothing whole, about him. I mean, we, we will tell you about this yeah. conspiracy, <laughs> but, uh, but and, he, and but yeah. it's total bullshit. He uh, in this book, he basically claims that over a hundred people. Um, who were connected in some way to JFK's assassination died mysteriously in the years. Right. Oh, and, and, there, and there definitely have been. Yeah, that that right. is the, th there is something to that. I'm talking about with, um, with Cookie. She's not part of that. But everybody from uh, Bowers, who was the guy that was in the, uh, the, like the watchtower in the railroad that actually saw the people behind, supposedly behind the grassy knoll, he died in some weird uh, uh, car crash. You know, all these, all these people have died in, um, in somewhat strange circumstances. They've tried to say that it would be like a billion to one that this would ever happen, at least many people would die. But this guy is obviously, this is what happens when you when you get a theory and then you're trying to prove the theory. Right, after the fact. Yeah. Like going, yeah. Uh, so it's like reverse engineering. Yeah. <laughs> or only focusing on the weird ones and not yeah. all the other hundreds that were Right, whatever. like this is the one that seems really off the wall and obscure to me. Right. Okay, so basically this is all about this phone call that was made by an anonymous woman to a switchboard operator in Oxnard, California on the day that JFK was assassinated. So I have a description of the phone call that is actually from the Warren report, which this phone call like made it into the Warren report. Mm -hmm. So it was sort of taken. It's actually in the Oliver Stone JFK yeah, movie too. Yeah. It actually uh, starts the movie basically. Yeah. So basically we have two telephone operators who were working in Oxnard, California, um, at some point, she hears a fuzzy sound and receives no reply to the call for, for operator. So she's hearing these whispering sounds. And this is like when, uh, this is like something when you were doing these old cases, you're like, it's so funny, like operators used to be on the line to help you get to your calls. Right. And then they have party lines and like all of this weird stuff. So they're like hearing a lot of shit. So she hears this woman whispering very faintly, the president is, go is going to die at 10, 10 a.m., she and the other operator sort of look at each other um, and they see that the time is 10.07 to 10.08 around that time. She next heard the, the woman whispering something along the lines of the justice, the Supreme Court, there's going to be a fire in all the windows. The government is going up in flames. Now, she said that she thought the individual sounded like she was reading something because she was whispering this so fast. Um, and then at some point, she, the woman lays the receiver on the table. There's no background noises whatsoever. Um, and then she party dials 12 to 15 digits. So they're hearing this again. And she asked the woman if she needs assistance. And then the voice, uh, who she said sounds like a middle-aged woman, which makes it not likely that it was Karen if, if it was, you know, anyone at all. And the woman's like, no, I'm using the phone. Now, at some point, she changes her thing, and she says the president's going to die at 10.30, and that's 12.30 Central Time, which is when right. JFK was shot. So this is in California. And it's just she starts rambling on more about courts, mentioning the government's going to take over everything uh, lock, stock, and barrel. So at some point, this just ends, uh, 
and there's more whispering that they can't figure out, and then the call just kind of abruptly ends. So this guy writing the book thinks that that woman... Yes. He believes yeah. that the female caller was Karen Kupsonet, or Kupsonet, uh, and one of the reasons he thinks this is her father has a very flimsy connection to Jack Ruby before Jack Ruby moved to Dallas. Because of Chicago. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and yeah. eventually assassinates uh, Lee Harvey Oswald, obviously. He theorize, theorizes that Ruby at some point tells Irv about the assassination plot against Kennedy, who then, for some reason, decides to share it with his with his daughter. daughter He's like yeah. drug addicted, Who's addicted to speed, <laughs> speed daughter Karen in Hollywood, and that she makes this, this anonymous phone call in an attempt to stop the assassination of Kennedy. And then somebody figures out it's her, and then right. kills her. And then the mob figures out what happened, and they kill her. Which is another crazy thing. It's like, well, why not kill Irv too? <laughs> like, right. He's the, like, why not kill them all? Like, yeah. so they go and kill Karen. Now, right. Karen was the linchpin in all yeah. of this. Right. So, Please. I mean, it doesn't make sense, but certainly it's an interesting. Uh, well, I've already theory. decided not to like this guy because he published <laughs> his own four-volume autobiography <laughs> that nobody wanted. So I already like this guy's judgment. He's is... like the Seth Abramson of. <laughs> <laughs> Like totally. publishing a 400 thread. Right. Like, who asked for this? <laughs> Call your mom. Write it in a blog. Uh, do you have any more information on this uh, phone call? Uh, nothing more on the phone call other than, yeah, it it did apparently happen. It right. did enter the Warren report. Of course, there's a lot of things in the Warren report. Right. Um, th- I mean, certainly it is an interesting coincidence. It is interesting. Now, I did read one thing that uh, I can't remember the exact title that the Camarillo Insane Asylum like is in Oxnard or in the vicinity of yes, Oxnard. Yes, it is. So they they did have. I did read something that yeah. speculated like, oh, was it like a random yeah insane person? But that would also be crazy. Like, was it because it was like, well, she was dead on, <laughs> like, right? If it was like from that s- asylum. And you'll even see this, and I printed out this paper to show you guys. This is an old paper, and you see the headline is, "How did he slip past net?" Uh, which is the subhead for Dallas police dig into Ruby's action. So Ruby has already shot Oswald. Uh, This is probably a second day story. So I imagine this is maybe on Sunday or Monday. And then below you have actresses, friends questioned. And it said, um, you know, I I can't quite read it because it's, uh, it's really blank, but they're talking about strangler. So they're saying that, you know, they're, they're treating this as a murder. And Oswald Grave watches Lonely Two, and then Reds lose vote fight because this is this is all just such <laughs> so early 60s. Yeah, yeah, it is so early sixties. <laughs> now, her dad obviously denounces this theory as being completely absurd, and he pretty much continues that train of thought his whole life. Um, he, as I said before, there's numerous reasons why the theory doesn't make sense. Oxnard is obviously 50 miles away from where Karen lived. Uh, they said it was an older woman. Like a lot of things don't just it's don't a bit line of a up. Stretch. Yeah. Uh, some other people actually say, um, including Andrew, that Karen was, um, you know, af- they were with her after the assassination, and that she didn't seem like she had any knowledge. Like she didn't reveal anything to oh, them. Oh, this far is the as- thing that I was talking to the person on the phone with. No, that none of that happened. Yeah. So he said that she seemed like obviously unhappy about what had happened, and that they about went- JFK. Yeah. Like yeah. clearly, I think everyone. Was yeah. Saying, a lot of people were unhappy. So there was nothing sort of out of the norm. They went to Palm Springs together. Uh, this whole group of friends, um, author James Elroy. Uh, he. He kind of says this in, what is the book called? Crime Crime Wave? 
He talks about Karen in his book, Crime Wave. Like, there's a whole chapter on her, and I'll get into some more stuff he said in a bit. But he claims that they all said that she was very bummed out by the assassination, um, and that they all returned on Sunday evening, and Andrew dropped Karen off at her apartment. So even though they were having problems, I guess they still were kind of maintaining some kind of friendly connection. Um, The speculation about this conspiracy was like a never-ending nightmare for Irv. Uh, He was one of the biggest critics of Oliver Oliver Stone's JFK film. Um, He attacked the movie and the conspiracy theories surrounding it. Uh, I saw that movie so long ago. Yeah, you know what's weird about that movie? It's it's a really, really good movie, but it's total bullshit. Yeah, (laughs) right. And there's amazing performances in it. Everybody from Jack Lemmon to Walter Matthau. uh, That's kind of what I remember. And Kevin Bacon and uh, the the performances. I think were great. Yeah, the performances are great. But it's like you don't know whether you would want to show it to your kids. Right. Because it's not know, like it's I, biographical. It's like, this is all wrong. Everything right. that they're saying is wrong. Well, do you have something? Oh, sorry. Uh, no. Okay. I, I mean, uh, you know, um, you know, I do know that. So well, I was going to do this story for Crime Watch Daily. But then Crime Watch Daily said, we don't want any older stories anymore. So oh. <laughs> then a bunch of stories that I had were out the window. And I talked to um, uh, Carrie, uh, Kupsenet Kaiser, who is her uh, niece, Okay. And uh, she did say that, you know, the family did think that it was Lang. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and they really did. We're, we're uh, putting it on Lang. And Carrie was actually named after Karen. Oh. Yeah. So they think, because I did read something where um, she had a towel on the floor of her bathroom and that her robe was sort of over a chair. Yeah. And so she was naked. What it looked like was that it was, yeah. So, um, you know, there were cigarettes on the floor. There was, uh, I don't think there was anything that was really stolen. There was that note there that we had read. It looked like that she had just laid out a bathrobe, but she hadn't put it on. And she was completely naked. So the theory is, is that this neighbor um, surprised her and either was let in to be, you know, hey, how you doing? Um, right. Which probably not because she was completely naked and didn't look like any of the clothes were torn off. Right. Unless he folded the the robe. Unless he took it off at some point. Yeah. And um, or the guys didn't lock the door when they left, right? And he either made advances on her or um, something went awry, obviously, and then he strangled her. There was no evidence of sexual assault. Okay. Yeah, I didn't see anything about that, but I figured it would have been brought up if if it had been. That's interesting. one thing that this kind of the JFK thing kind of did bring it back into the forefront. Um, the, at the time, the Today Show broadcast a list of all these mysterious deaths connected to JFK after that, and Karen was like the number one person on this of list. Of course she was, because yeah. she's also the prettiest. Too, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So. Um, and this led to um, her dad left, released this statement. The NBC Today show on Friday carried a list of people who died violently in 1963, shortly after the death of President John F. Kennedy, and may have had some link to the assassination. The first name on the list was Karen Kupsinet, my daughter. That is an atrocious outrage. She died violently in a Hollywood murder case still unsolved. That same list was published in a book years ago with no justification or verification. The book left impressions that some on the list may have been killed to silence them because of knowledge of the assassination. Nothing could be further from the truth in my daughter's case. Now, both of her parents died in the early 2000s, and her brother, I guess, whose daughter is Carrie, Mm -hmm. he's actually like, 
I thought this was like a little detail. He won a daytime Emmy. He produces Judge Judy. <laughs> so that was like oh, an wow. interesting, like little weird yeah. detail. Okay, so let's get into this James Elroy yes. just a little bit. Do you so, have a lot of stuff on this? Uh, not, not, not a ton. <laughs> you know, James Elroy. If you guys don't know who he is, he wrote *L.A. Confidential*. He wrote *Black Dahlia*. He's considered. America's greatest modern noir writer, right. uh, crime noir writer. Just this tidbit, um, my great-great-grandpa's house is Kim Basinger's house in L.A. Confidential. Oh, my God, really? Oh, really? Yeah, that's I my, love that house. I have tons of old photos of it. My great-great-grandpa was friends with Myrna Loy. And uh-huh. Oh, we should have post these. those pictures if you have We any. should post them. That's yeah. an amazing Isn't house. Isn't that an amazing house? I know exactly house? where it is, too. I, I do, where too. Where is I, it? It's on Wilcox and, like... Uh, it's down near, near, Wilshire. Yeah, near the um, but the by the Wilshire Company yeah. Country Club. Yeah, I, I would love to live in that house. That's my dream. Oh. Can you get that? that can you get that house back? <laughs> Come on, I Rachel. wish, but but it was left my family in the forties, probably. Oh my god! When they, someone bought it for like four thousand yeah, exactly. dollars. I know. I know. <laughs> not, not even, totally. Okay. So, so yeah. So Elroy went went and uh, you know Elroy has a fascination with. Old Hollywood murders. Right. Yeah. His, his mother was murdered outside of Hollywood in El Monte, California. Uh, that's still an unsolved case. Yeah, that's a great book too. By him. My Dark Place yeah, is one of my it. one yeah. of my favorite books. Amazing. Yeah, and um, obviously Black Dahlia. He was obsessed with Black Dahlia. People have tried to connect his mother's murder to the Black Dahlia murder, but mm-hmm. you know this this guy was made by murder. And he, uh, when he was looking, he you know he's constantly digging through these old files, looking at these cases, and he's looked into Cookie's case, and he has a theory on what happened to Cookie. His theory is pretty crazy to me. It's almost crazier than the, than the JFK no. thing, in my opinion, because it's so <laughs> out. It's like out there, don't you think? It is. It, it is out there. Stranger things have happened, right? But there's a lot that that needs to happen for this to actually work. Yeah. Okay. So let's get to his theory a bit. He thinks that Karen's death was an accident. Um, I guess in her apartment, there was a book that was found, which was open to a page about dancing in the nude. Oh. Elroy (laughs) speculates that Karen was dancing in the nude while she was high on drugs, which caused her to fall over and hit her throat on something before she landed on the couch. So that is like literally a like a Buster Keaton esque yeah. <laughs> series of events that yeah. have to happen for her to end up where she ended up with a broken hyoid bone. It's like, a pretty big coincidence, but it's not outside the realm of possibility. It's, it's not. And... <laughs> which is why I'm like, hmm. Okay, well, here's his quote, which I find funny because he kind of acts like people are always trying to get this outrageous thing when it could just be something as simple as dancing nude and hitting. Yes. <laughs> so I he, mean, he look... says people love to think something is inherently more dramatic, more secret, crazier, uglier, more vicious and vile. People love the inside scoop and will deny all the facts, even when they hit directly over their he- the head with them. It's a very, very common phenomenon to ascribe more intrigue to a prosaic event than the prosaic event truly demands. Now, I agree with what that quote says, oh, yeah, but I don't necessarily think his theory is the Occam's razor, like choice well, of what happened. Well, right? it comes down to, yeah, with, with, I mean, he's describing, uh, the Kennedy assassination, really. Uh, he's describing right, so any, um, you know, I, I was, I'm just got back from working on a case in, um, in San Diego where 
you know, I always go in with Occam's razor. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not so much the simplest explanation as the best. It's the explanation that you have to make the least amount of assumptions for. Right. So if it's just like, all right, did this person kill themselves or did this happen and this happened and this happened and this right. happened and this happened and this happened. So, and you get that a lot, especially with suicide or murder stories, which is kind of, this isn't, um, you know, and not so much suicide, but it, um, although it could, potentially could have been, but it she obviously been. didn't really do that to herself. There was, this was an accident, even though she left a note. Um, so when you, when you go, when you're talking about it, it, it's, there's a, there's a lot of things that have to happen to get somebody into, um, into this, this house. Everybody had their own alibis, right? Why would they do it? If a guy is drunk and he goes into houses sometimes, doesn't mean necessarily that it's going to kill somebody. But, um, and there's also a lot of assumptions that have to be made that she's going to be dancing naked, um, hit her neck probably on the coffee table, right. and then fall back on the couch and die. In the exact place you would need to hit your neck to, to, kill, to yourself. kill yourself. Right. I so mean, there's assumptions that need to be made with with both of those. Uh, they didn't have DNA uh, back then, at least. Well, they had DNA, but they didn't have DNA uh, collection. They weren't using it. And, yeah, I, um, it was discovered, but it wasn't it wasn't there yet for criminal cases. So, you know, um, you don't know if this guy was there yet, and the guy probably had been in the apartment. So right. just any kind of trace of him is not necessarily going to mean that he was there. Um, there's sort of the interesting, um, the guy who runs find a death website. Yeah. Have you been to that site? Oh yeah. He, he really goes off on Elroy regarding this theory. So I'm just going to include this little bitchy yeah. uh, comment. <laughs> and so <laughs> he, he says another theory held by exactly one individual writer, James Elroy is that Karen was stoned to the gills, danced alone, naked in the apartment, fell or hit her neck on an object and fell face down on the couch and died. He bases his theory on the fact that a book on the benefit of naked dancing was found in the apartment and the coroner may have been a drunk prone to mistakes. Thanks for playing Elroy. We have some lovely parting gifts for all of our contestants. Wow. <laughs> Yeah. Imagine going off like that on someone as prolific as Elroy. <laughs> uh, so he kind of comments on this, the medical examiner. So I'm going to go in a little bit with this medical examiner. This guy, Dr. Harold Cade, uh, who claimed that Karen's high hyoid bone was broken, he had some issues himself. He was an alcoholic, according to many people. He had a history of erratic behavior, and his autopsy findings were often challenged. In fact, oh. there were some cases that were overturned. Like, mm -hmm. he had people were convicted of murder based on his right. findings. Do you have information on this, or no, am, I, I, am I, I off? No, I know about <laughs> it, but yeah, it was... Um, so what, what Elroy was trying to point to, which is p potentially correct then, if we're leaning all this on the medical examiner's report and the hyoid bone... If the hyoid bone wasn't broken, if she just might have um, OD'd, I mean, OD'd yeah. which very well could have been the possibility of this thing. Right. right. You know? Now, there is some people, who are, there are some people who speculate that the medical examiner is the one who broke the hyoid bone himself Examining during, her. during the autopsy. And because he wanted to cover up his mistakes, he just declared it a homicide. <laughs> oh, that's uh, the, oh, God. And then there is someone who also said that they heard him say after the fact on another case, at least I didn't break the hyoid bone on this one. Oh. And it was something he said as Who is this doctor? He was the LA medical examiner, I guess. He's like Mr. Magoo. Period. Uh, so, yeah, obviously, if that hyoid bone was broken by him, yes. everything people are speculating on as far as murder goes just goes completely out the window. 
and it is just likely an OD yeah. or possible suicide. Yeah, and I'm holding the medical examiner's report in my hand right now, and it says, um, you know, in you know, so part of it's handwritten, part of it's typed. It says asphyxia, manual strangulation, that is typed. It says strangled by unknown person, which is handwritten. Place of death, West Hollywood, and then actually says not in a hospital, which I thought was a that's interesting jarring um, um, wow. description. Yeah, uh, yeah, and you know, it's sitting right here. And when you're looking at this, it's saying he's saying right there, homicide, strangled by unknown person. Well, and he declares this a homicide, then they're not really looking at any other possibilities at that point. And they did, did they have the ability to do, to to do, do a, toxicology? To do a tox? They they did. It's not as a uh, as it wasn't done on her though. What? Uh, Even I though there sure. was an empty bottle of pills. Um, and then there were unknown prints that were found in the apartment. So, like, I think a lot of things just weren't even looked at once they sort of decided it might be a possible homicide, and they had their, you know, suspects. Uh, right. The other thing I was wondering about, and I kind of tried to research this last minute, I was wondering if, um, I don't know how easy it is to break your hyoid bone, but I was wondering if there was something, if you have an eating disorder, could you like break it some way if you're throwing up a lot, like if you're bulimic, if you get damaged and you have brittle bones because of, you know, kind of, of being unhealthy. Up, maybe, or I don't know. I don't, like, I don't know. I that's don't, just my little I don't think uh, so, citizen detective. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I don't care if I'm right. It's just if I'm interesting. <laughs> okay, Desi, what do you think? Do you have any theories of your own of this case? My theory is that it was an accidental overdose, but she might have had uh, a suicidal kind of attention, like kind of maybe she was like, I'm going to commit suicide, but wanted to be found. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Like, I feel like it's an accidental OD. Yeah. Personally. I feel the same way. I feel like all of her suicidal things, and I'm just speculating based on her personality, were sort of drama and like she wanted this guy's attention. Yeah. That's sort of what I would have to Well, pick. she clearly wanted to bond with this guy over these scary notes they were allegedly both receiving. Yeah. yeah. You know, she wanted them to console each other about that. Everything she did was like very over the top in relation to her breakup with this guy. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I just I I don't know why I think it's OD. I mean, the suicide. naked dancing does make sense to me, honestly. Really? <laughs> yeah. Like, the, when I heard his theory, even though it's like a lot of things have to happen, like, right. I don't necessarily believe, like, she fell and hit her. If it was, like, hitting her head like a William Holden, mm-hmm. then I would completely buy it. But right. Hit your, no, the hitting yeah. the neck thing that seems a is, little too... is a little too weird to me. Like, yeah, I yeah. buy more that that inept doctor broke it by accident yeah. examining yeah. I mean, her. This, yeah. is the, this is a case where she is buried. Yeah. So if they really wanted to find out whether the medical examiner messed up or not, they they could. They How could. would he break it? Is it very easy to break? It's pretty easy to break. Yeah. So oh. he he would definitely know he did it. Mm-hmm. So he's definitely covering it up if that's what happened. Uh, yeah, potentially. And then what do you think about the guy that the family thinks did it? Lang. Yeah. I think he just was a guy that drank a lot. Yeah. You know, and and liked to go into people's apartments, but. I mean, I, he, Honestly, yeah. he was he was cooperating, and then he then he eventually stopped because it's his. Whatever. You can do that yeah. at some point. You mm-hmm. can just say, "I'm not I'm not dealing with this anymore." Right. So, you know, she was buried actually in in a plot, and her mother was buried in 2001 right next to her. Is her she mother in died. Her mother died of emphysema, and the family actually. And this is from uh, Find a Death. The family tossed a pack of Pall Malls into oh. her casket. <laughs> 
<laughs> I kind of like that. I do too. <laughs> Pall Malls, that's like, that's no one smokes those cigarette. anymore. It's yeah. like Chesterfields. It's yeah, like, it's Benson Chesterfields and Hedges and yeah. Pall Malls. No one smokes those anymore. I love it. Um, yeah, so that's the case. Wow. I'd never, I can't believe I'd never even heard this one before. It was never even on my radar. I think I just knew it. I probably had a peripheral knowledge of it from like the JFK. Yeah. Cause when you said well, it, I was only, like, oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, the reason why I, you know, I started this whole journey with crime with the JFK assassination really? when I was like 12 years old. Yeah. Oh, really? Or 11 years old, something. And, um, I watched this program about it. It was actually about Nostradamus. I talked about it in the book and this is like, <laughs> I'm like staying at home and I'm like, freaking out because they start showing somebody in the grassy knoll and they're showing like this outline of a guy with a rifle. And I'm like, this guy with the rifle, somebody tell somebody something. So the next day I went to my, my junior high library and I said, can I have every book on the Kennedy assassination? So then wow. that's where I started learning about, about blood spatter and, and, and forensics and, and bullet casings and all that. So I had been acquainted with the the death project, as they call it, some people call it, and I knew about Cookie's case. And of course, you know, you're eating stuff up as a 12 year old hook, right. line, and sinker. Uh, I eventually did solve the Kennedy assassination. It, <laughs> it was Lee Harvey Oswald, and he did act alone. I'm sorry, but that's true. We always want to, you know, like Elroy was saying, we want to make things bigger, especially something like that. Right. Because it, it's. The, the measurement of that, we right. want things to make sense. So yep. you have the weight of the most powerful man in the world, and think about it on a scale, versus this schmuck. Right. How can this schmuck take out this most powerful man in the world? It doesn't make sense to us. If this was, you know, a conspiracy where the Russians were coming in, that makes sense because they've right. got and the mafia KGB or the whatever, mafia yeah. or this or that. A bigger entity. Yeah. But uh, it doesn't make sense for this this perennial loser to take out the most powerful man in the world. Right. So we don't want that. Our brain does not want that. And in the same sense that we don't want, the, you know, we want a monster. Right. Yeah. You know, we, we all want that. We want that monster to be there. And we want that monster to have killed this young girl as opposed to her having an accident. Right. Right. It's an interesting case. Like, despite, even without the JFK thing, I still yeah. think it's yeah. kind of like... Uh, well, it's also what happened, you know, it's it's a case of a mom and a daughter and, and a stage yeah. mom. And, and the Hollywood aspect. Coming to yeah. Hollywood and, you know, moving to, into a place in West Hollywood and sort of, you know, going on audition after audition and trying to make it and sort of right. thinking that, I mean, when you think about it, now she's 22 years old, she's you know? She's so, so young. So young, but, you know, to think that then she's like, I'm not getting any jobs. Or I'm the, you know, it's like when you watch The Bachelor and they're like, <laughs> I just want to find love. And there's like 22. And you're just right. like, shut the hell up. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, that is time, bitch. <laughs> that is like always like the most wild thing to me is like when people like, and you like, I wish I could go back to myself when I was 22 years old and just be like, shut up. You're yeah. not old. Like, you don't right. know shit. Your, if you don't have a certain thing by, like, 24, like... Right. That your life is over. Yeah, uh, it's just not true. And But I do feel really bad for uh, Cookie because, you know, clearly she, like you said, she had this really toxic relationship with her mother. She was on speed. And look, I know more than anyone what speed does to a person. <laughs> right. It does make you... It, it makes you go insane. Yeah. If yeah. you take enough of it. Um, and so she obviously was really paranoid and she's like chasing her ex-boyfriend all over town. Like she was engaging a lot of behaviors that were, you know, not good for you, not good for her, not healthy for her. Like 
that is what points to like this logical conclusion to me that this was an accident mm-hmm. as a result of, you know, a drug induced, you know, whether it was an overdose or she fell. Yeah. So, um, I mean, we've covered a few kind of actresses who've had these sort of tragic ends, like that aren't that famous, like Tammy Lynn Leopard and uh, I guess Jean Spangler. Carol Landis. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, she was a little more famous, yeah. I guess. But yeah, it's, it's sort of sad to have these people who come out to like follow their dreams. Like the whole thing is always tragic. And it's why I always just get really sad around actors. Yeah. Well, it's <laughs> just, I mean, like you the whole know, idea of it yeah, is just. I mean, you know about the, the dangers of speed. We know, me and Desi, about <laughs> the dangers of growing up a New York Mets fan. Oh, <laughs> are you a Mets fan also? Yes. Oh, my God. And this is why I drink. And the yeah. thing is, it, well, but we had the amazing euphoria of 1986. Right. And right. we basically sold our soul for that. In yeah. the same yeah. way that the Jets, which I'm also a fan of, oh my God. sold their soul for, for the Namath game. I was at game six when Mookie hit the ball, and right. it was one of the greatest. It's, it's in the top ten moments of my life. Of course. It's amazing It's like my kids, my, my kids being born and, wow. you know, yeah. this and that. And it's just like, you know. You can't. You, no one can understand that moment because no. it was literally like the depths of hell. Yeah. And also, and, and now, like, the payback that I'm getting for that is not only the Mets never winning again, but also my favorite player, the jersey that I would wore to every game, which was number four, Lenny Dykstra, uh, becoming this the shit ultimate head. shit show. Look, of, we've talked about my love. <laughs> Lenny, Dykstra. Dykstra, Lenny Dykstra's come up on the show a lot because Desi had a crush on him in the 80s. And my boyfriend, Brendan, was Lenny Dykstra for Halloween in the 80s. So, like, Lenny there's Dykstra like, used to be hot. That's what people need to know. I had the nails poster on my fucking wall. Oh, and I know he that was poster. stunning. You know stunning what? specimen of man. So, I was, I was the first kid at Chase Stadium to have a Dykstra shirt. Wow. And I bought his rookie mitt. I have on his rookie oh. mitt. I own his rookie glove. R- rookie, no, yes, yeah, rookie mitt and his rookie cleats. And remember, he actually flirted with almost hitting um, uh, 400 once. Right. And I was just like, wow, this thing's going to be worth a lot of money. And now it's going to be worth a lot of money for <laughs> Look, a whole different all reason. Right. <laughs> all of those guys. I mean, the, Jesus uh, Christ. Uh, yeah, if you want to read a good book, it's going to be, um, what's it? Uh, uh, the Bad Guys One, it's called. Did you see the Daryl and Doc documentary? No. Okay, that's yeah. good. That made me cry. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, that that was... was like, honestly, because I, I can't remember if I told you, Rachel, or if I talked about it before. I don't have like pictures of my childhood because I literally grew up like w- with shit. Like my mom has nothing. I don't have pictures. So when I was watching that documentary, and that's why I wrote that article yeah. that I guess you saw, um, I it was like seeing my childhood Aww. in a way that I had never seen it because I had I knew all the games. I knew the fucking video when they were singing yeah. "Let's Go." Mets. Like, oh my god! I was just like, holy shit! This is like finally I'm seeing like old home movies because that's how I was. I was so into that season, yeah. like just seeing all the clips and footage of all those do you, guys. Do you was remember? Insane. So the Let's Go Mets video, which yeah. is amazing, <laughs> which is amazing. There's Gene Shalit and, and Howard Stern in it. Totally. Like, like, little, it's like the, it's they, like, yeah, incredible. they went and got every New York personality to it's put amazing. on a match jacket. <laughs> and then there was, but there was also a rap song because this is right after the Chicago Bears uh, right. shuffling career, yeah, right? Yeah, Super Bowl shuffle. <laughs> they did a rap song called "Get Mesmerized." Have you ever heard it? Whoa, it's that. so bad. I mean, duh. It's so. <laughs> I need to bad. listen to that later. I'm gonna, yeah. Except for like Kevin, to... Kevin Mitchell, and uh, that was a team that got into four bench clearing brawls in one season. That's how great the Mets in '86 were. That season was everything for yeah. me. I love it. That's that I shaped can... my life. Yeah, that wow. season. Yeah. So very good. 
very good year. I, I love hearing you talk about the Mets because this sparkle you get in your eyes, like no other subject. Like even when you're talking about meatball subs, like, like you get this twinkle in your eye. So, I mean, that is the highest compliment. If I like you more than food, then it's... Right. Do you know what's funny? I, actually, I just remembered in the book, I thank Lenny Dykstra, but I put the old Lenny. Oh, the old Lenny. yeah. Honestly, because I love Doc and Daryl. So when I saw them in this documentary, it was like, my heart was like, oh my God, I still love you. Like, please, God. Yeah. And I also really now enjoy Keith Hernandez and Ron Darling. Oh, Keith Hernandez is amazing. Like, they're, I was like, they're the best uh, color commentary. <laughs> like, they should, do, like, everyone else pales in comparison. Mm -hmm. And I do want to read the Ron Darling book, but I haven't gotten around to Although it. Although he, he apparently slanders nails. Funny thing about Lenny is, or the sad thing about Lenny is that he came out and he, he actually, rich. he had a great business. He yeah. had these, um, these car wash places. Right, right. Wow. And then he just, and then he started this magazine and then he just, just got wanted to be bigger and bigger. He bought like Wayne, Wayne Gretzky's house. Yeah. And he just got way too big he for... Flew too he, he, he flew too close to the sun. He flew too close to the sun. He did. He yeah, did. Yeah, because I do remember, I was like, oh, Lenny got rich. Like, there was that period where he was really wealthy. Yeah, uh, he was he was yeah. doing good, but, yeah. you know, he was maybe always... Maybe he'll be an episode. Yeah, maybe he <laughs> will be an episode. You know what? He would, probably, he would probably come on, on the show. That I don't even know if my pussy can handle that. <laughs> <laughs> Like despite all my dissing of him, I still have the thing. Oh, he will I come on the show, to. and he'll he'll want to sleep with you, <sighs> Desi. I know, honestly, I, I know. I'll live blog it. <laughs> I'll live tweet it. I, I know it'll be the worst sex, but I had to do it. Apparently, though, these women uh, pay him for sex. Pay you him? Yes. Pay him? You haven't heard him on Stern? Yeah, he says that he goes out with these older women, and, and they pay him like yeah. he's a jiggle. Like so a he might pay How? me. <laughs> 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 right, you pay me, what? Lenny. You pay At me. Least take me out to like Muso and Frank's or something. Muso and Frank's, that's where you're That's thinking. so, yeah. Like, that's... I'm, I'm getting it. You're going to go to Lowry's. No, he would take you to Lowry's, let's be honest. He would take He's me to Lowry's. Taking you to Lowry's. Yeah, because he would be like, this is really classy. Right. This is a nice place. This Lowry's. is a nice place. You got to get the prime rib <laughs> <laughs> and the baked potato. Duh. Um, great. I think that's it. Yeah, right. that's it. Thank that you was really fun. So Thank you so much Billy. for coming. Thanks on for the having show. me, guys. You're welcome to come back anytime you want. You I, will, I will definitely I will definitely come back and we will see uh I'll you know, do the case next time. Me. You do okay, the case yeah. next time. We'll switch it up. Yes. We'll switch it up. Cool. This yes. is super And I'm fun. sorry to put you on the spot, though, Nesta. Because I, I, whenever I go on somebody's podcast, I want to be part of the podcast. I want to just I be like, like it. Yeah, yeah, me too. I know you were probably thinking, oh, we can get a free week and I don't have to do any, uh, <laughs> any, <laughs> any research. But no, I want to be part. And especially because I, you know, I... Living, I just wanted to have a case that you living, wanted to do. Yeah, living yeah. in Hollywood, uh, you know, and around Hollywood, it's just like the, the things that I know about are the crimes. And yeah. right. I know that this happened there. And, oh, it's the El Coyote and, or whatever. You know, knowing, you know, so I went back and I've listened to a couple of your, your shows, but then I went back and looked at every one of your shows and was just like, oh, they haven't done Cookie. So I was like, oh, Cookie would be good. Wait, the most Love important it. question, though, because I am a desperate, abused child. Did I do a good job? Yes. <laughs> You did a great job. Thank you, Daddy. Yeah. <laughs> okay, guys. Bye. All right. Bye. bye.